0: You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, Live Different Podcast listeners? It's Matt coming to you from Costa Rica with an awesome episode today with someone who says that you don't need to worry. You don't need to panic. If you thought that being a digital nomad was not for you, well, you're right. This guy is going to tell you why it's not for you, but give you some resources as to how you can get out and see the world otherwise, or if you do decide to become a digital nomad, what you should be looking for in a situation. And I will just pepper in a nice little plug for Under 30 Experiences, our group travel company for young people, ages 21 to 35, because if you are not in a position not putting yourself in a position where you can go and travel the world anytime you want for extended periods of time and work digitally, and you'd rather be in a community and have roots and stay in one place and travel when you feel like it, when you want to go out, then I totally support that decision of yours. And so will my guest today. But I wanted to tell you that... If you want to go somewhere with Under 30 Experiences, in a couple weeks, coming up June 26th, June 25th, for our VIP alumni group, we are having a sale. I do not yet have the details of the sale for under30experiences.com, but it might be a good idea. We are going to do a three-day sale, yes, that 26th, 27th, 28th. I think it's a Wednesday through a Friday. So if you are interested in going somewhere... It's a little tip for all of our readers. As always, thank you guys so much for all of your support. I try to put out the very best content that I can, get the very best guests that I can, tell it like it is. And for that, I am very, very grateful. If you want to continue to support, we'd love for you to leave a rating. You don't even have to write a review. Just drop a little rating that says five stars. Just in iTunes, scroll down. Or if you're on SoundCloud or YouTube or anywhere else that this show is found, that would also be super helpful. And you can reach out to me on Instagram, on Twitter, if you still do that, at Matt Wilson TV. I would love it. And you can just get pictures of my dog. No, forget the places, right? Just check out the little pup. You might like it. Thanks, guys. Hello everyone and welcome. I'm your host Matt Wilson and today I'm very excited about our guest Eli David. Eli is a digital nomad and entrepreneur from Israel. He is currently in Estonia and the podcaster and blogger behind Becomenomad.com about long-term travel and digital nomad lifestyle. He is Also, the founder of Startup Blink, a global map of startup ecosystems. Very important if you are traveling around and want to be in a hotbed of entrepreneurship and bright young minds. And he formally founded a website called Lingo Learn, which I'm also uh, going to pick his brain a little bit about. And finally, he has lived in over 40 different countries and traveled to over 60. And he came from, as he says, an average life as a rising star and an accounting firm. So Eli, I'm excited to hear your story. Welcome.
1: Matt, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: No, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, so tell me, you are in Estonia today, you said.
1: Yes, I'm actually spending winter again in Europe, which is something I promised myself I wouldn't do. It's, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, we have the flexibility of traveling wherever we want and we end up sometimes in weird places. But uh, I got invited to a conference uh, by the Russian government. So I went to Moscow. I stayed a little bit in Kazan, a city between Moscow and Siberia. And when it got too cold, I said, okay, let's run a little bit to to the west. And I ended up in Estonia, a beautiful country, very small country, less than 2 million people, uh, but still relatively cold, lots of snow.
0: Excellent. Well, Siberia certainly sounds cold, and I know where Estonia is on the map, so it can't exactly be warm where you are at the moment, the time of this recording. But I wanted to ask startup Estonia is becoming quite popular with the digital nomad scene as well as just, it looks like Estonia is investing a lot of money in bringing smart young people to their country. Is that right?
1: True. Estonia is uh, is doing actually great in uh, startup uh, branding, in marketing, in very innovative uh, programs such as uh, the e-residency e-res- uh, that has uh, got a lot of, uh, let's say, marketing and popularity and hype. Uh, they're doing good, good job. I have to say that they're starting to have a branding of a startup uh, nation. They call themselves the cold Israel because basically Israel is kind of like the hot startup nation in Estonia because it's cold here. It's becoming very, very popular to start startups here. Uh, the country is very, very small. It's less than two million. I have to say that, you know, I spent a month here. Uh, there is a lot of hype. I'm not sure if there is still a lot of substance, but they have really great startups Uh Taxify, which is the European Uber uh, pipe drive. They also have a uh, uh, TransferWise, which is used heavily by digital nomads. So they're doing very well considering the size of the country. Is it a digital nomad hub? Uh, I'm not sure because of the weather. You can't beat Chiang Mai and Bali, uh, as you know that. So. Uh, yeah. And also the costs are relatively high, uh, higher than the other, other uh, Baltic uh, countries, uh, because Estonia more or less consider itself as a Nordic country. So I guess that uh, I would recommend it to digital nomads in the summer, but be aware that the costs are not as low as in other locations. And uh, But it's, it's a good place, especially if you're interested in startups.
0: Okay. And I had read recently that they were one of the first countries to offer uh, some type of residency for, uh, or e-residency, I guess they, they called it, for people who wanted to set up location-independent businesses. Uh, do you know anything about that?
1: Yeah, um, I do. I actually worked a little bit with the guys here that, uh, that launched this program, and uh, it's a very innovative program. It allows you to basically start a business, a European business, even if you're not located in the European Union. So usually a lot of people that are not in the EU are using it as an option to uh, start a business and a company in the EU, have a EU bank account and so on and so on. A very interesting opportunity, I think that especially if if you're targeting uh, EU countries as a target market, it's a splendid opportunity. It doesn't really give you any benefits on the res- residential side. It doesn't mean that you can stay here. You, you still, if you're going to travel to Estonia, you're still going to be a, a tourist on a Schengen visa. But it allows you to build your company here. So it, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. And I think that that um, they're very, very innovative in a wave of a future that is surely to arrive, which is uh, basically the struggle of. a uh, governments to gain uh, talent, uh, especially technological talent. And Estonia kind of uh, raised their, got to the stage very, very early on that. And they kind of understood that they need to attract uh, entrepreneurs from around the world. And you have to respect them for being uh, innovative. And the question is, where is it going to go? But their e-residency program does have implications on the future of mobility, the let's say relationship between travelers and digital nomads and governments and countries, so uh, definitely something to to be applauded.
0: Okay, interesting. And I know that you are from Israel and you're a digital nomad and you've lived, God, you said in forty different countries or so at this point. But of course, here I am going to ask you about your home country. Can you tell us more about the startup scene and why digital nomads are, are coming to Israel and how this is such an anomaly in the Middle East?
1: Okay, so, so Israel does have a startup ecosystem that after spending time in Israel and Estonia, uh, Israel's startup ecosystem is, is a lot more mature, serious, and, and like you said, an, an anomaly. It shouldn't have happened, especially considering that the country is so small. But the startup ecosystem there is is uh, very mature and specifically, let's say, uh, places like Estonia or even Chiang Mai are great if you're trying to build a, a lifestyle business. Uh, Israel is more of a place to go, not as a digital nomad, because I think that the costs are, are very high. Uh, so even considering uh, comparing to Estonia, the costs are still higher. But if you're trying to build a very serious company, a serious startup that can really make an impact, then Israel is your better bet because you have a a much better investor ecosystem and so on and so on. Why did it happen? Uh, I don't know. First of all, I have to recommend Israel as a tourist destination. I think it's a fascinating country. I honestly, if I would have one month to pick to go to, to a place and just see so many things, different things in such a small geography, I would recommend Israel. I think it's one of the most special places uh, in the world. Again, with the disadvantage of being relatively expensive uh, and another disadvantage, which is basically the safety side, although that's not correct. Uh, Israel is very, very safe. Statistically, uh, you're much more likely to have problems in a in a traffic accident than anything that has to do with, uh, uh, let's say, political issues and so on and so on. But uh, yeah, Israel is becoming very successful. I think that there are, Uh, Innovative, entrepreneurial people there. Uh, There is a premium to also being a small country, which is something that I noticed, and that's coming back to Estonia and how Estonia is also an anomaly and how it's uh, relatively successful. Uh, A smaller country can do bigger things. I think uh, I was just in Russia, and you know, Russia is so big on the geography that I'm always wondering how difficult it is to kind of have a central policy and do something when your country is like half of the planet. But uh, those small countries like Israel and Estonia have the advantage of kind of have creating those hubs, concentrated hubs that are going to be successful. Specifically in Israel, I think it also has to do with the the army. A lot of the innovation, you know, there is a a saying that says something like, I'm probably butchering it, but something like that. Necessity is the father of innovation or the mother of innovation. Yeah. And and in Israel, you have a lot of necessity because of the, uh, let's say, external threats. The country is really pushed into having an edge. And that creates a situation that technology is becoming extremely, has always been very, very important to have a technological uh, advantage. And this push to a technological advantage uh, created, uh, let's say, a critical mass of uh, innovation. So that's basically what's going on there.
0: Okay, great. I know years ago I read a book called Startup Nation, uh, which is was kind of the story of, of as they called it, Israel's economic miracle. Uh, are you familiar with the book?
1: Yeah, I'm familiar with the book. Israel is not really an economic miracle, although it's like to portray itself as such. It, it has a little bit of a two-economy syndrome, which is the startup economy that is separated from the local economy the local economy is pretty uh, let's say backwards <laughs> in comparison to the western world but what happened is like a, a very small part of the economy just kind of ignored the local market and just went on a startup mode to conquer the world in a way and it was very successful so uh, i think that the startup miracle is there but the economy in general in israel is not so robust uh, as you would think but It's a country that uh, I have to admit uh, made very, very big uh, advances in the last 20 or 30 years, more than anything because of technology and startups.
0: That's great. Yeah, I I know a lot of small countries are at least having these discussions about trying to emulate what Israel has done. Uh, I know the country of Iceland is one of them who is really pushing hard towards, well, they have a very educated population, so a lot of smart people and some really fast internet. And uh, with those two things, you can accomplish a lot. So I know that's one country. I've even been to the U.S. Embassy in Nicaragua, where you know it's, it's really a socialist country with, in my opinion, kind of a capitalist uh, veil over top, but they're still having these conversations because there's there's opportunity, and and people see that. So that's that's interesting. I did want to ask you though, Eli, for anybody who does want to visit Israel, what would you tell them to see, and also what can they tell their loved ones? Because you did say that it is quite safe, but can you elaborate a little bit on on why or what you would tell people when they say, "Oh my God, you're going to Israel"? We've heard uh, what about the conflict with Palestine? You know how how people get.
1: I would use statistics and basically Israel is is uh, unfortunate enough or maybe fortunate, depends on how you look at it, to be in the center of uh, the global view. So anything small that happens there, because it's like a very conflict that people have a, a lot of emotions towards all over the world, you know, the promised land, the holy land, and so on, the conflict between Jews and Arabs. So it makes the news, but um, really unproportionately, To the things that happen there, if you compare it to other countries or regions in the world, the threat is much limited. So first of all, you don't have a lot of threat of crime. It's relatively safe on crime. And second of all, the country is extremely safe because let's say if something happens, you have so many trained people at any square mile that can end any incident that happens in comparison, let's say, to Europe where someone can go uh, totally berserk uh, for hours. So the idea is that one of the discomforts that people have in Israel, which is also the source of safety it has, most of the people who traveled to Israel told me that the things that bother them the most is, for example, going on a bus or on a train and about a quarter of the train is going to be soldiers with guns. So for me, it looks totally natural. You know, I was a soldier with a gun as well. But for people, it seems like, okay, what the hell is going on here? You know, it's like, for me, it's like, again, I don't understand when people are telling me that it bothers people because I was, you know, since you're, you're a small child, you see this all the time. But this is also the source of safety, which means that if something happens, it will be ending very, very quickly. Statistically, things are not happening. And especially if you avoid... Uh, let's say uh, the hotspot, um, then basically it's a very safe country. Let's say that you have to be extremely unlucky for something to happen to you. And as I mentioned before, you're much more likely uh, if you're going to have any problem to be in a traffic accident than anything else. So statistically, uh, the fear doesn't make uh, a lot of sense uh, considering how How much investment there is in safety in the country? It's it's a very safe country, and uh, now recently a lot of countries are trying to also or not also emulate Israel on the startup scene, but also try to understand on the safety issues how do you how do you keep a country safe when it has uh, let's say a lot of enemies uh, in a way? So uh, statistically and, and rationally and logically, it's an extremely safe country now more than. Than ever, because to be to be honest, the conflict has, as we mentioned before is very public, but you don't really see it on the ground. Which means that, for example, I'm from Haifa originally. So when when I'm in Israel, uh, I'm co-working in uh, in an office there, and 50% of of uh, my friends in the office are Arabs. You know, so the idea is that the conflict is very very public, but on the daily life, it doesn't really happen uh, in a way. So. I would definitely encourage people to visit. Just be afraid of the cost of living, uh, with nothing else.
0: <laughs> well, uh, that's great, and I, I can encourage people more to go out and see things for themselves, so that they can actually comment and ask people. You know, that's that's why I had to had to ask you about that, even though you know that's not what you're here to talk about on the podcast. But uh, as as an intelligent person from your country, it's important to to ask people who are from Place is different than your own ab- about these things. Eli, do you know uh, my friend Ben Lang? He's from New York, I believe, but he served in, I think, the intelligence unit in the Israeli army, and he had a startup map uh, years ago, maybe similar to yours, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I do know Ben Lang. Just to go back, actually, to... Uh, he's a great guy, by the way. I, I had a chance, he devised me also uh, when I started Startup Link gave me some really valuable advice just to go back to the to the risk thing i want to make sure that people understand that there are some countries that are not safe Uh, so i think it's great that you're bringing up the point because this is the responsible thing to do people should not always be in the mentality of uh, the world is good and the news are fake you know and we should just go there because some countries are extremely unsafe now for example needless to say syria even places like Venezuela and so on and so on. So do you, you do need to do a lot of uh, research. And I, I basically, as a, re- a responsible traveler, I'm also uh, avoiding uh, countries that are currently unsafe because the world is so big. You have so many options. So what's the point? But you have some countries that are suffering from, let's say, bad publicity, although they're actually relatively safe. For example, Israel, uh, Russia is another example. And uh, even in, the, in our Middle East, uh, Iran, uh, which is uh, an arch enemy of, uh, of Israel, people that uh, visited Iran, of course, I don't have the chance because uh, it's illegal uh, for them to accept me, but they uh, said that it's a very, very safe and welcoming country. So a lot of the things that we see on the news are, are not necessarily uh, true. Uh, going back to Ben Nang, yeah, I know him. He, he built a local startup uh, ecosystem map that was very, very famous back in the time. Um, he's a great guy. And what we're basically doing is just taking kind of the same model and trying to do it on a global level.
0: Excellent. That's great. Well, thank you for that bit about where to travel and, and where not to. I would also put Colombia on that list because people hear so many. So many things in the news and places carry these reputations for decades and it's hard to shake them. And of course, please do your research and do read about what the U.S. State Department has to say about these places and, uh, you know, try to heed caution. But just encouraging people not to take things at face value or just believing the headlines that are trying to sell newspapers are important to to click through to, oh, what studies did they cite or or where did this quote come from or where do these statistics come from? You know what I mean?
1: Mm, definitely. And I can only vouch for Colombia. I was there six months uh, last year I greatly enjoyed it. Colombia is a good example of a country that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, suffers a lot of bad reputation and they're, they're a little bit you know, upset about uh, everyone uh, mentioning narcos and so on, especially if you go to Medellin, which is a very, let's say, now very organized, the most organized uh, city in, uh, in Colombia. I would say that you can travel to places like Israel, Colombia, and so on and so on. But uh, in some cases, it requires a little bit of change of mindset. Uh, which means that uh, the same level of, uh, let's say, trust and uh, the same level of, of being totally, you know, if I walk in Israel, for example, in the middle of the night, I'm totally unaware of, I'm like not thinking even on the option of being involved in a criminal uh, act and so on that, that someone's going to, let's say, attack me. And so on. in places like Colombia, they're a lot more safer than what people think they are. But you do have to be, let's say, change a little bit your behavior depending on uh, where you are. So this is another aspect. So I always tell people, usually you can travel to, let's say, 95% of the countries out there with great uh, safety. Uh, But also you have to do a little bit of your own adjustments because some of the areas might be unsafe and some areas within the city itself or uh, within the country. So uh, Colombia is a good example of where... I think it is now safe to travel, but you have to be a little bit more cautious than in other places. Let's say if you go to Norway and you go to Colombia, probably uh, your chances of being involved in an incident that involves crime are higher in Colombia. But if you adjust your behavior, they might be even lower.
0: Sure, sure. That No, that's a fantastic point. And Eli, we got in, engaged in Such an interesting conversation that I I did not get the chance to actually ask you about your own personal story. So if you don't mind sharing that quickly, I know there was a cat involved along with, uh, as you said, 40 different countries. So yeah, I'd, I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit more about yourself.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the cat is—you uh, probably uh, you've been on my about page on becoming. Yes, Mama, sir. So, Yeah, the cat is uh, is becoming always a question. So yeah, basically, I was—I uh, I had a very normal lifestyle. I was an accountant. I was working in big four companies like uh, KPMG, BDO, and so on and so on. And uh, I kind of noticed that uh, life was not the ideal life that I wanted to have. Um, But it wasn't enough to kind of. Uh, say stop, you know, and this is something that that a lot of people that ask me, how did you have the power to do that, like to take the decision and so on? I tell them I didn't, like life pushed me into it. Uh, I have to admit that if life would not push me into it, I would probably uh, stay in the same lifestyle. So the idea is that I had a lifestyle of an accountant. I, I kind of like worked every day. I had a serious relationship and so on and so on. And then uh, the 2008 uh, crisis hit and 2009 I was fired. And then I was fired again. I was a really not not such a good uh, accountant, but I kind of figured out that, you know, it was like life pushing me out of this uh, where I was. Uh, also my relationship, my relationship broke. So I can of say that as a joke that I got fired twice from my work and also for my girlfriend, she also fired me. So the idea is that, yeah, it's kind of like a, a fun fact and it all happened at the same time. And I'm kind of grateful for it because basically um, I think that the most inspiring part of my story is uh, the ability. So I knew that my life could be better. And I actually knew that I enjoyed, immensely enjoyed traveling but I didn't do anything about it, and I would probably not proactively do anything about it. So this is uh, like, not to claim that, you know, because I know a few few people that actually felt that their life is not going in the right direction and change it proactively. I didn't, but the thing is that when life gave me a chance, and basically it all happened in the same month, I got fired and uh, my relationship broke. So when it happened, I think that what maybe people can take as some kind of inspiration is that I didn't panic. Because usually, you know, the the minute you lose your job and you lose your relationship, your instincts are kind of like, hey, I lost something, let's regain what I lost. And in the back of my head, even then, was kind of like uh, this dream that I knew that was not doable because I had a stable work and a stable relationship. And then actually when I got the opportunity, I stopped for a second and I said, you know what, okay, like now you don't have any more excuses because the, the things, the attachments that tied me down to the old lifestyle are kind of gone. Uh, the big attachment, by the way, after after uh, uh, the relationship and the work was the cat. And uh, uh, I really like this cat. <laughs> Rizik is still uh, still alive, live and well, uh, eight years after, which is pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, the idea is that I found some um, a friend of mine. I persuaded or manipulated them to take the cat and uh, I was uh, just saying, okay, let's... Uh, Let's do something new, you know. And I, I embarked on the this lifestyle of constant travel. And basically, what I'm doing, I'm changing locations every two or three months. It seems like a very big decision uh, to to take this lifestyle, but it's actually not, you know, because I also told myself, you know, what if it doesn't work after three or four months? I'm just going home. And I had a trip, you know, so. Basically, what what do you have to lose? In a, in a way, it's like a win-win. If it doesn't work, you just had a treat for four months and then you go back to the normal lifestyle. If you manage to find some kind of equilibrium, then amazing. And most people, I will say in advance, will not find this equilibrium. Um, there is a reason, I think, why the trend is not really a trend. I don't actually think there is a trend of digital nomad lifestyle. I think that for most people, this lifestyle is not sustainable. In the end, we prefer to be in one place, in one comfortable place, to have our home, to have our good relationships, to have our friends, to be uh, with family, to be in a place where we feel comfortable and safe. So I think that psychologically, the phenomenon will probably not expand. It's a phenomenon that has a little bit like Estonia, has a little bit of more hype than the actual reality of it. Uh, most people do do like to have their base. So uh, for me specifically, I think that maybe it's something in my psychology or something else. It kind of allowed me to keep going uh, after eight years. Nothing's perfect. No, nothing is perfect in life. You keep on facing uh, challenges. You keep on making mistakes, like newbie mistake. You know, now in Estonia, I, I rented the... An apartment uh, um, is in the city center. After I understood about three years ago that I would never rent a, a place in the city center because it's so noisy and touristy, and I did it now. Why I don't know, and it's, uh, it is a mistake. So <laughs> the other is that you keep on surprising yourself and you keep on kind of uh, making rookie mistake, but but it's great because uh, so basically that's what I do a little bit about what what my lifestyle is. I'm not a, like it sounds a lot more exciting than it is. Uh, the only thing that I do is change location every two or three months. Uh, I just stay in a place. I do co-working. I go to the office every day. I work a lot of hours and I just take the weekends off. So in a way, if you would look at me now on the way I live now in Estonia, okay, I'm here only for one month. And before that, I was in Kazan in uh, in Russia for two months. And before that, I was in Porto for two months. And before that, in, in Colombia for six months and before that, in Thailand for three months. But The idea is that once I arrive to a place, I'm super serious. I'm taking an office. I'm working for the vast majority of the day. I'm kind of a local in a way, and I'm taking the weekends off. I don't want people to have the impression that this is a lifestyle of, you know, total excitement and so on. Most of it is work. Most of it is actually being normal with one exception, which is actually the transition that happens every two or three months, which usually happens in a day. And then I'm settling down again.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you for for sharing all that. You said a lot of interesting things, including that life pushed you into this. And you talked about how maybe you wouldn't have proactively gone out and changed your life. So I wanted to ask you what advice that you might give our listener who might be in that job at home where they wish they would have could be able to see more of the world, but they're not necessarily completely unhappy because, you know, unless you're really suffering from depression or something, most people are fairly happy that I that I interact with. I know, granted, I, I live in in my own little bubble, and there are many places where I could go and meet unhappy people. But if for the general podcast listener, I think everyone out there is probably fairly happy, especially if they've been listening for a while. Hopefully they've been living a a fun, active lifestyle as we promote here. But what would you tell people? Would you tell people to go out and change their life proactively? Or would you say, well, just wait, wait around and see, maybe you will get fired twice by uh, the two most important entities in your life, if you will
1: yeah it's, it's a good great question. I, I honestly cannot recommend anything because I know I wouldn't do it <laughs> uh, if I would be in their position. So it's easy to say, you know, go do it and and, and find your your happiness and, and make a change. Uh, I wouldn't do it. Um, so yeah, I guess that in my case, uh, probably you have other other people you interview who proactively took a decision to change and they were doing okay and they just took a super courageous decision to do that. I can't advise here. So yeah, I would would basically go to the advice that you gave. In in my case, I I noticed that life has a tendency to kind of give us what we need or what we want in a way. So the idea is that uh, what I would advise is that just know, have a plan B, put it stashed away somewhere. Nobody even has to know about it, especially not your significant other and (laughs) so on and so on and not your boss. Put it stashed away and you will probably be surprised to see that there's gonna be a breakpoint in your life because all of us have breakpoints and uh, in those breakpoints the only thing I can offer is maybe do what I do and what I did and don't panic and uh, just take an opportunity when it comes. so uh, according to my experience and specifically because I didn't take the proactive step I, I think that's that's well enough and uh, I think most people actually miss opportunities as things are breaking. They're getting panicked without understanding that in this uh, transition period in which they have lost, let's say, what was most precious to them, their degree of freedom has substantially risen. But because of the panic and the loss, we don't really see that what we gained is amazing flexibility and the ability to be free. So the only thing I would advise is when, when this moment happens, and it will happen grab it and just don't panic and just say, okay, this is the leverage to actually maybe something else. And on the other side, I would say again, the implications of going for an experiment like that, you don't even have to frame it as a nomadic lifestyle. I'm now becoming a nomad and I'm like, just say you're going on a trip. People love it when you tell them that you go on a trip, your family, your friends, they will say, whoa, that's absolutely great. You're going to Nicaragua for four months. That's amazing. So you're not losing a lot by... Doing that, and uh, if you have great attachments, let's say a great relationship, amazing friends, you enjoy your lifestyle, you have a good job, don't leave it. and uh, Definitely don't leave it and do, do the things that I've been doing. But if your attachments uh, suck and you suffer from them, and a lot of us are suffering for our attachments, then this is the situation to kind of have a deep look and maybe proactively do something, I wouldn't do it. So I can't really recommend, but it sounds logical that you should, but I wouldn't. So yeah.
0: Okay. That's really interesting. You said that life has a tendency to give you what you need. And I'm curious if before you were a traveler, you felt this way where, you know, a lot of people believe, oh, everything happens for a reason. And when it's time, it will be time and you'll just know. Is that kind of how you feel about a lot of life decisions? And did you feel that way before you were a traveler or just since this uh, seems to have worked out for you in a positive way?
1: Yeah, I think that first of all, the first challenge that all of us have is knowing what we want. And uh, honestly, I struggle with this every day. Probably everyone I know, and probably you, Matt, as well, We we don't really know what is it that we want. This is a very deep question. That even people like me that might be living maybe for some people the dream are still struggling with that. Like, what do I want? How do I want my life to be? Uh, For other people, it's like, wow, you already won. I didn't win. I'm still struggling with the question of what do I want really? So the idea is maybe if you're uh, settled in another lifestyle that you're not that much enjoying, know what is the option, what is the second option. And the thing that I I did basically when I had this lifestyle and I felt like I'm not living it to the maximum, I kind of told myself, you know, like, what do you want? You know, what was good? And the only answer I came up with is a, a backpacking trip that I did maybe nine years before I started my nomadic adventure in South America for about a year. And I was super happy there. And I have to tell you, until now, even with those nine years, that was the most happiest year that i had i was much younger there were not no business no making money it was it was just fun and the the idea is that when i when i lived in the lifestyle let's say the normal lifestyle i kind of knew i knew when was my best year so i kind of told myself you know what if i'm going to do something different it has to kind of look like the best year that i had so i understood that it involves some kind of element of Uh, changing locations of traveling and so on and so on so the first thing to do is basically know what is it that you want and then try to understand what are the things that are uh, let's say blocking you from doing that which are your attachments so i would even map your attachments you know what are the things usually it's a relationship or a cat and so on and so on an amazing job and so on, and just make sure that those things are amazing and if you're not amazing, slowly, I think that with time, you will reach a conclusion on yourself, or life will give you this gift of kind of freeing you from those attachments that you don't really enjoy, because attachments that you don't really enjoy are usually a lot more fragile than attachments that you would enjoy. You know, if you're in a bad relationship, there is a lot more risk of it or or actually opportunity of it breaking than if you're in a great relationship. So the idea is that if your attachments are not good enough, let's say you're not really enjoying work, there is a lot more risk of you getting fired. If you're not enjoying your relationship, there is a lot more risk of it breaking away. Uh, If you have a bad relationship with your cat, there is much more risk of of them running away from (laughs) you as well. So the idea is that If your attachments are not good, they will have the tendency to break by themselves. And you just have to be prepared for the moment of breaking and then just seize an opportunity in a way.
0: Okay. And do you prepare yourself uh, with backup plans for all sorts of things as, uh, okay, I know a lot of people have uh, financial backup plans with liquid assets and savings accounts, or, you know, I went on a, on a slight YouTube hole uh, the other weekend, on this whole subset of people who refer to themselves as preppers, and they have everything prepared with their go bag and their cash and their stockpile of food, just in case anything goes wrong uh, do you have Do you have backup plans for for quite a bit of things, or was this just a a dream that you had tucked away?
1: And uh, backup plans, uh, you know, if I was traveling 100 years ago, I would have a lot of backup <laughs> plans. But let's admit it, the world is becoming a little bit boring. My backup plan is to go to a McDonald's. You know, it's like you're gonna have McDonald's everywhere. So the idea is that uh, uh, 100 years ago, uh, traveling, you know what? Forget it. Even even when when I started to travel about, I don't even remember. I think it was about 18 or 17 years ago it was much more exciting. There would be no technology, no Uber, no booking.com, and uh, you would have your guide of Lonely Planet and you would set up on an adventure that uh, kind of, uh, let's say, never... You would have a lot more uncertainty than now. Traveling now is easy. It's easy because of all the technology and of all the solutions, Airbnb, booking, Uber, Google Maps, that you can actually see where you are. So specifically, uh, backup plans for... Getting lost as you travel, no, uh, you you actually have to figure out ways of actually getting lost because it's hard to get lost in in the world today. It's very, let's say, technological and so on. So the idea is that uh, for specifically on bad case scenarios, I don't have a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, fear that something would go wrong. On the financial side, of course, I think that one of the things that I understood is that money is freedom in a way. So um, the notion of traveling the world without uh, care and so on and without thinking about your financial future, I think is a mistake. So if you are embarking on this uh, thing, you have to also make sure I think that the biggest thing you want to avoid is the trap of having to continue with this lifestyle, even if you don't want to. And that's going to happen if you're financially unstable. So, for example, if you're going to a place like Chiang Mai and you're staying there for a long time with the cost of living that is so low and you spend 10 or 15 years there and you have not progressed financially or in your career, it's going to be very, very difficult to return to New York. And also the idea is that you're going to be trapped in a lifestyle that you don't like, which is maybe the nomadic lifestyle that you would like to at some point break away from. So I totally prepare a plan B by working most of my day on my startups uh, to be in a situation that I have a good opportunity to have financial freedom, which is which is important. I think that a lot of digital nomads are kind of maybe ignoring uh, the the importance of money uh, because Money is very important. You know, we can't we can live a, we can't really live a spiritual life in this life. You have to take care of your financial side. You have to guarantee yourself from plan B and so on. So if you're asking me what is the best backup in the world, it's basically money. There is nothing more better than that. And it's also, at the same time, skills. Uh, to be in a situation that you are growing as a, as a professional and that you're an expert in something. So I totally advise people... To do that to build that and that's why my lifestyle is a little bit boring because most of the day i'm working exactly uh, for that goal and by the way uh, the work side also connects to the meaning side if you're working on something that you really enjoy uh, you're going to be more happy the, i would not be able to travel let's say for nine years without stop that would be in, at some point i would tell myself wait but what am i building like what is my contribution to the world how am i getting smarter and better so I think it's a very interesting question, but on backup, yeah, definitely, you have to think about backup, and you also have to be aware of not being too paranoid from the day life, day-to-day life and backup ever backup plans for the medium or long-term future.
0: That's great. Well, thank you for for sharing that. I think the financial uh, bit that you talked about is extremely important. I see it all the time in Latin America where somebody will come, uh, let's call the person a gringo and they they come down and they decide, well, they're gonna give surf lessons on the beach or start their surf school, or they've sold their home in the United States and invested in a, you know, in a small hotel in a place like Costa Rica and then they're stuck there. They can't leave and yeah, it's, it's it's sad. You know, I even know people who have come down and taken a huge pay cut, and then their expenses rise as they end up having kids. You know, they get lured in, and they say, well, the women are beautiful, and then they have a few kids running around, and uh, yeah, it can be, it can be really a really tough situation unless they mind their financial life. So that's, uh, yeah, thank you for commenting on that. And I actually wanted to go back to something that you said about the kind of the fallacy of why digital nomad lifestyle isn't so sustainable. Can you elaborate on that? Because I bet a lot of people listening are saying, God, eight years moving every two months. I could never do that.
1: And they're right. <laughs> they're 100% right. Let's say the the normal psychology is more into having a safe place, having a comfortable place, and uh, creating a social circle that stays with you. So if you're doing what I'm doing, which is basically resetting your life every two months, in a way, your social life, and so on and so on, and and where you are and where you stay and so on, for many people, it can get extremely annoying. For me specifically, it doesn't. I don't know why. Like I don't have a lot of, let's say, nostalgia for for, uh, places where I've been, and also, I'm, I'm feeling totally comfortable having a fresh start every two months. But for most people, that would be extremely difficult uh, to do for very good reasons. And, uh, you know, one, one of the most important things if you are embarking on a lifestyle like this is to also listen to yourself. And when you get signals that it's no longer the thing that makes you happy, uh, stop. And that's what happens to a lot of people that are kind of trying this lifestyle. And then after a period... They say, you know what, it was fun. It's a great period. I'm happy I have it, but I would kind of rather, uh, you know, slowing down now and settling down and so on. So I think that uh, psychologically people are not that much into moving if they can stay in one place. One place can offer you a lot of a lot of benefits. By the way, not only psychological, also financial. If you're trying to build something and you're constantly moving around, you're going to spend a lot of precious time on, on the move itself. So I have a feeling that, that this lifestyle is not sustainable for uh, the vast majority of of the people. However, experimenting in it and giving it a few months is fun. It's an experiment that you're probably not gonna regret. So I encourage people to to go for it without big declarations of this is who I am now and uh, until the end. And by the way, I'm not I'm not saying those declarations as well. I'm keeping myself the. The option of of bailing out at any given moment and saying hey, I'm not that anymore. I, I was that. That was an amazing story, but uh, I'm much more happy now in one place, and and I want this all, this option to always exist. And that's why I'm not advocating that this lifestyle is better than the other one. Absolutely not. Everyone has to kind of figure out their their own thing.
0: That's great. And uh, you even mentioned before that you're not making any big declarations. And that you can say you suggested for people to say, hey, I'm going on a four-month trip, and maybe you end up extending it, which is exactly what I did, because I didn't have the heart to tell my mom, hey mom, moving to Costa Rica, see you later. You know, if you're really trying to create some family drama, try that one. Right. So otherwise, hey, Ma, I went for I went for a month. Okay, well, a month turned into three months, then I came back and saw her, and then it turned into you know, and and I'm going on six years now and, and I come back and try to have that built into my lifestyle where I can travel and see my family because that's that's extremely important to me. Yeah, that couldn't be more important. Uh, Eli, I wanted to ask you some very specific nuts and bolts about real tactics that they can use about being productive because I love that you pick a place on the map you probably book your flight. You say, this is where I'm going to go. I found my place to live in the, well, you said you don't like city centers, uh, but can you explain your process for how you do this and stay productive? Because moving to some people probably sounds really crazy. And yet to do it in a weekend every two to three months, uh, you have to have it down to a science at this point.
1: Kind of yeah i have I have actually a list of about forty things that I do every time I reach a new place and I just enjoy killing that list slowly and then starting again another list when I go to another place because I kind of figure out what makes me happy. And you know like for example, finding a swimming pool, finding a co-working space, uh, going on the local group of expats uh, on Facebook and so on. So there's a, really a list that uh, that uh, of things that I do that are specific for me. So the idea is, yeah, well, the first thing and uh, the best productivity hack that I've got is co-working. So the idea is that uh, basically I do co-working wherever I go, and before I go to a place long-term, I know 100% that I'm not going to stay there more than a week if it doesn't have a co-working space. I know. Like, this is the must for me. So even I, with my flexible, let's say, uh, lifestyle, have a no-no, which is staying in a place longer than a week without co-working. Absolutely not. Uh, So that's one thing. A uh, coworking gives you the social element as well of meeting other people. It kind of gets you out of home and makes you a lot more productive. So I think uh coworking is number one. The second thing that I would do is always have a SIM card with you, buy a local SIM card that has a lot of internet. So in any case, you can continue working even if I don't know the coworking is not working or or whatever. So a, a data package on, on a SIM card and a coworking space are basically gonna cover everything you need in a way. So I have a feeling that now, if you're working remotely, those are the two, basically the only f- two things that you need. Other than that, um, you're going to be okay. Um, there, there are some issues with the the time differences, which can be pretty massive. When I went to Colombia, that was a giant problem because all my team is in Europe, and I had to do start doing calls at 7 a.m. in the morning, and then at 12 p.m., uh, nobody was there anymore. Everyone uh, took, took their time off. So um, there, there were a few problems, but still, it's kind of like a, a very interesting process. And I think that the, the, on efficiency, you can you can get things done still and uh, be efficient. There is a there is going to be a price that you're going to pay in any case, and you have to know that when you're moving between locations. So yeah.
0: Sure. And do you have a list published maybe on your website of these forty things?
1: Uh, actually, I do. I do. I'm going to send it to you after the interview and maybe you can, you can publish it as well.
0: Excellent. Well, we will put that up on the show notes at under30experiences.com because we don't want to hold out on you guys because I want to get a hold of that list. It sounds like uh, you have some, some things figured out there. And then finally, Eli, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Startup Blink. And I know you have a, a massive list of, well, a map. That you can click and it turns into a list of where startups are located. And we've been talking a lot about being a digital nomad, but you also mentioned a place like Israel has a lot more, as you call them, serious startups. And of course, what you meant by serious, I I believe, is that uh, they have maybe venture funding where the Venture capitalists are saying, uh, "I don't know if your summers in Estonia are really going to work out uh, here. You need to be on the ground and manage the team before you run run out of money, etc." Not to say it can't be done, but uh, could you tell us a little bit more about maybe the difference between these types of startups and digital nomads, and how there is some overlap? I would say it's probably important for people to seek out. Uh, hotbeds of smart, young, tech-savvy people when, they're, when they are traveling.
1: Definitely. Startups are important. If you're a digital nomad, you want to be in a situation that you're in a place that has a vibrant uh, ecosystem, especially if you're trying to build things. So it makes a lot of sense to kind of figure out if there is a lot of entrepreneurial uh, activity going on. One of the things that I noticed, by the way, is that uh, cities with a lot of entrepreneurial activities are much more fun cities like San Francisco, Tel Aviv, Berlin, and so on. Those are the countries that are ranking very high on our rankings as well. So it makes a lot of sense to get there. Uh, If you go to startupblink.com, you're going to see a table uh, and uh, a map of startup ecosystem where you can see all the startups and co-working and accelerators. But below the map, you're going to see a table which ranks all the cities and countries in the world. Um, I would expand more on this, but because the battery is almost off, I will just say, have a look at the table and try to figure out where is the best place for you to uh, kind of go. You will get benefits if you pick a place with a good startup ecosystem It will be more fun, more productive, and it will have more opportunities as well.
0: Excellent. Eli, let's wrap it up. Where can people reach out to you? And if you get cut off, I promise I will record a little something at the end
1: sounds good so they can reach out to me at at becomenomad at twitter Uh, they can hear the blog and the podcast at uh, becomenomad.com and they can see uh, the map and the ecosystem uh, rankings at the startup link with a b.com so yeah it would be great to connect to people if you have any questions just uh, feel free to tweet me or uh, just leave a contact form on becomenomad and I'll get back to you
0: excellent Eli well I hope we get the chance to uh... Meet in person someday in one of one of these locations, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. I know the audience will get a whole lot out of this. Thank you again for being on.
1: Thank you, Matt. It was a pleasure.
0: You got it, Eli. Have a great day.